have an interesting backup setup, don't you? For your system. I, I've been thinking about backups a lot lately, and mine is severely inadequate. I basically have the time capsule. That's it. I mean, every once in a while, I'll plug in a drive and, and do a, a quick extra backup, but I don't have any cloud storage. I mean, I do have cloud storage, but I don't, it's not like a backup. It's more of I put files that I want that are important to me or something on the cloud, but it's not like an ongoing backup. Yeah. So your time capsule, is that, uh, is that what you run Time Machine to? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's the whole all in one and everything. So that's pretty good. So at any, at any given point in time, um, you have two copies of your data, your, the hard drive and your machine and your time capsule. Yeah, but it's not as granular as I would like. Um, cause it does kind of start tapering off certain things or it only keeps certain changes within a 24 hour period after, you know, certain number of hours and things like that. So it kind of scales. So it's it's not like I could replay my entire day or anything of changes in my hard drive. So, but it's a backup, not a. Oh yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, well, it depends on how it runs. I mean, I mean, there have been times where I've kind of deleted something and gone, "Oh crap, I need to find that." And it was a day later, like I just gotten outside that 24 hour window where it actually keeps everything. Oh, I see what you're saying. And then you know I couldn't recover it. Well, that's because you're supposed to be using version control. That's what that's for. I'm not talking code. What are you talking about? Something you're changing so damn frequently that you need to go to a certain hour of a certain day in the past. I mean, come on, man. It was a document that was creating a technical document, and I had well, you made a use, bunch of changes. You use Google Docs. It saves every version. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get used or to Google use Docs. Or use Office 365. It probably does the same. I haven't used it, but I hear it's pretty good. I do use Office, and I do have Office 365, the service, so I probably should start saving to that. But yes, thank you for trying to solve my problems for me. <laughs> yeah, I have a, so I do time machine as well. It's, you know, not, time machine, I know some people hate it. I think it's okay. I mean, it's, it's actually pretty decent. I'm, I'm sure there's things technically that could be improved about it, but. Well, I found that if you, if it's backing up a large file consistently, it tends to fail. Like I, I, I used to have my VMs on it, but then it would tend to fail. So I, I got rid of, I excluded those from the, from the backup. Yeah, I don't, I think I have not excluded it as well now that I think about it. Because if you, you know, if you have a 15 gig VM file, or let's say it's a 60 gig, I mean, that's a reasonable size. Um, if anything changes on it at all, it backs up the entire file. And I don't think Time Machine is smart about backing up only like the changed blocks. I think it copy, recopies the entire 60 meg, 60 gig file. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and it seems to do okay for a while, and then after maybe a week or a month, I'll notice that it just stops backing up. So hmm. I yeah, tend my, to avoid really large files when it comes to that. Yeah, so my I back up Time Machine too. I have a replace my Drobo with a Synology, which is basically it was the, it's like the same solves the same problem as the Drobo had. They're they're both four drive, uh, four bay or whatever little disk stations, but my Drobo is just really old. Uh, and then when I was looking to replace it, uh, the Synologist seemed to have way more features and I'm super happy with it. Yeah. But I do that. And then I also have a USB three, um, two, like two and a half inch portable hard drive that I, every morning I pull out and plug in and, uh, I do a super duper, which is, a just a little backup software for the Mac, but, um, should have your echo for that super duper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I use super duper to back, to keep a bootable copy of my hard drive on this external drive. 
Um, it's pretty cool because once it, once it creates the initial backup, which takes a while because it's, I don't know, probably, what do I have a 500 gig hard drive? Um, after that, it does a, like a smart copy. So it's basically only copying things that have changed. So it takes maybe five minutes to run. And then, uh, and every once in a while I forget to do that, but I usually do that every day. And then I also have crash plan, which I essentially have it backing up my entire documents folder and some other stuff. And that's the cloud storage, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I've got, um, like, uh, let's see. Oh, it's not here. That's weird. Crash plan. Let me open it here. I think I've got 70. Wait a minute. No. 465 gig on crash plan. I think I pay like five bucks a month for it. It's not, I don't think that's bad. I haven't, that doesn't, that sounds reasonable. I think it's a great deal. How much would Salesforce charge you for 460 gig? (laughs) I'm sure quite a bit. I but you're getting you. you're getting more than just storage. You're getting security and and all the layers that go along with that. I get all that with CrashPlan. Salesforce <laughs> would charge you one point two million dollars a year for that. Wow! And I pay sixty dollars a year for that. <laughs> There's something wrong with that number. That doesn't sound right. It is too. I just I have fresh numbers from Salesforce. Ah, so. Yeah, there's a reason I was thinking a lot about backups, and that's because I recently saw an application um, that used to target, well, not it still targets, but it was primarily developed to backup Google Apps. And it's basically, spanning. it's spanning, yeah. yeah. And they recently, well, they actually did a beta last year, and I think they were at Dreamforce um, demoing this, but they finally released it to the general public, and that's a service that does uh, Salesforce backups. <clears throat> and I thought it was pretty interesting because we really haven't had very much traction in that space. There's really nobody out there doing backups for Salesforce. I think this is the first one I've ever seen. And it's kind of a common problem for enterprise. I mean, when I was in the throes of, of an enterprise company, one of the things we wanted to do was back up our data before a major release, or if we had to transform a lot of data um, as part of a new offering or something, we wanted to be able to back up the data. And all we were left with was either A, creating a new making sure we refreshed a, a, a sandbox, a full sandbox, just so we had that along with the metadata or the, the CSV backup files. Yeah, I think I always suggest people just turn on the weekly, weekly backup thing. Yeah, but the problem with that is there's no recovery. You get the backup, but how do you recover from it? You basically have to data load that data back in. Well, if you have some kind of, well, what do you mean? What, what kind of event are we talking about here? Like, you Salesforce loses your data? No, I mean, Salesforce obviously, obviously has all its, its backup and recovery systems. So if something happens on that end, that's fine. But or if not, someone not, goes... Not obviously. I mean, that's it's a possibility that Salesforce could hose data. I think they I think they have hosed data on accident before. I could be wrong about that. But it's... Uh, let me just say this. That, um, uh, well, Yahoo Mail recently, they hosed like 5% of users' mail. Yeah, and that's kind of the point I'm leading up to is we we've kind of gotten really complacent when it comes to these cloud applications. We've given them all our data. We've taken it for granted that it's all up there in the cloud and available all the time. And we're basically trusting them to manage all this data. But if we're not downloading it to our hard drives or putting it somewhere else and they screw it up, it's gone. That's why I'm saying, that's why I was wondering what type of event you're talking about, like Salesforce losing it or, or, you know, as a Salesforce user, you mess up your own data and you well, want to- any of those scenarios, any of those, any of those scenarios recover, 
counts as an something you need to recover from and where where are you going to get the data to recover that from? I guess it just depends. I mean, if you have a recent backup and Salesforce has hosted your data up and, and your, your question was, well, how do you restore it? Well, I would send it to Salesforce and say, here you go, guys, I, I backed up my data. You restore it for me. I've also seen situations where a company will do something really stupid with their data and they didn't have a backup. And I'm talking about their data in Salesforce. They didn't mm-hmm. have a backup, but Salesforce, um, backs up to tape every day and they, for a large amount of money, um, Salesforce will restore your org from tape for a certain day from a certain day. Yeah. In fact, spanning mentioned that in one of their webinars that, and they quoted a number of $10,000 to do that tape. Yeah, backup. Sounds about right. I mean, but that's, you know, could be a small price to pay if you post your data up. I mean, 10 grand, it's not bad. And I say to tape, I don't know if it's still to tape. It's some, but some type of, you know, slow offline storage, essentially. Right. Um, so does, what's the new, oh, uh, spanning. Do they, so you mentioned restored what, as, um, as the reason why you, you don't think the weekly exports good enough. Does spanning restore for you? It does. It actually has monitoring tools that lets you, it'll allow you to pick whichever objects you want to back up on a regular basis. It also gives you a mechanism for restoring that, um, I didn't get to see this in the in the demos or webinars, but it does say that you can restore pieces of data. So you're not actually having to restore an entire CSV from that day. You can actually go in and find data, apparently, and selectively restore certain bits of information. Okay, so I bet it's not super smart. Like, you can go, okay, I want to restore this one task or this one contact, but I bet if you delete a contact and all of its associated things, you probably ha- would have to go into spanning and say, okay, I want to back, I want to restore this contact and then you do that. And then, you know, then find the things that were, were related to that contact and restore those. Maybe, I mean, if that thing could automatically restore, that's just I like th- a whole graph of stuff. I think uh, number does. one, I'd love to see it. Try that because I, don't, I bet you they don't do that. Um, and two, that would be awesome. Yeah, I think it does, but I, I haven't seen it do that. I want to say that it does do that kind of backup, but that I mean, would be, there, there's Very even difficult. things in order to restore a cell, uh, an entire Salesforce org that you have to do. Um, not only do you have to, of course, go basically to all the leaf nodes and restore those first, and then work your way up the graph. But there's things that you can, that you even with that type of process you can't back up without revisiting objects multiple times and updating them right. with like links and stuff. So, well, cases uh, like you know lookup lookups that reference this look references that look up the object. Um, the same object. Yeah. If, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I see. Yeah. A self-referential. Look yeah. Up. Self. Yeah. That's what I was looking for. Self-referential. Oh, I can't say that word. Self-referencing. <laughs> say yeah. That. Yeah. So, so I've had, I've had cases where I've tried to update or bring back a record where it was referencing, you know, another object of itself. And I had to make sure to do one pass and then do another pass. Actually a perfect example of that is the parent child hierarchy of, of accounts. You know, I usually, uh-huh import all the accounts and then I'll go back in and do an update to reassociate all the parents. If I'm doing some kind of migration. Yeah. Yep. So it would have to be smart enough to do that. Um, I, I just can't imagine it is. I mean, like I said, that would be cool. It's, it's possible. It's just, that's, that'd be impressive. Um, so, uh, backupify has supported Salesforce for a long time now, I think. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> um, I don't know if it does restores. I've, I've never used it. I've never used any of these things, but well, either way, I mean, it, when I've been asked to do backups, I've, I've always asked the question, okay, we have a backup plan. We, we're putting it to somewhere. 
but A, all your data is in CSV, so it better be put somewhere secure because um, your data is just sitting out there in text. And B, what are you going to do with it? Are you actually going to be able to recover it? Do you have someone that knows how to recover from it using this data? And by that, I mean, you know, if there's something that the company did or an employee did within a company that you can't really go back to, I'm sure Salesforce would help you, but it's not really their responsibility to do that type of backup or restore. That's not, I mean, that's not as big of a problem. I mean, number one, make sure you have the data in case there is some kind of, you know, catastrophic event. If you have the data, at least, at least if something does happen, then you can either pay Salesforce or you can pay some consultant to, you know, load that data in for you. It's good to know your options. It's good to know, you know, at least be aware of, of the challenges of that and what you need to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we're talking trying to recover from something, obviously something happened and your system's down for a while. What percentage of, of Salesforce customers do you think don't run any kind of backup of their own because they think Salesforce has got them covered? I wouldn't be surprised if it's 90%. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And I, th- I just think that that kind of alludes to some of the big time trust we're putting into companies like Salesforce and Amazon and Google with all of our data. It's already on the cloud. So we think, oh, it's already there. It's always, you know, they're managing, making sure those hard drives are up and all those kind of things. But, you know, there are companies out there who probably do have some kind of OEM process because there's an audit that they have to account for through some kind of, you know, regulation or something that they have to meet. But everyone else, I don't think even gives it another thought. I mean, if nothing else, just do the weekly export and it'll email you when it's ready and just download the files to your hard drive or something, you know? Right. But But again, that that goes back to my other issue though. I mean, that's your customer data sitting out in plain text. Well, it's not sitting out. It's stored within Salesforce. Not if you download it to your hard drive. No, that's true. Yeah, that's right. And we have but, a lot of customers, I'm sure you do too, that think it's a great idea to store social security numbers in plain text or passwords in plain text or other things that they do in plain text. But these are also people who walk around the airports and leave their laptops places and they don't have they don't have full or any, you know, disk level encryption on their hard disk and it's got just as you know, just as just as much, if not more, very sensitive data. So I mean I feel like I'm trying to set up all these straw men to support my argument, but all, all I'm really well, trying I, to say is I let's know, let's I, make I sure we remember to, to back up our data yeah. and to have I, something, at least yeah. anything. No, it, I mean, I agree with everything you've said. It's just that, you know, if you're going to go to an extreme in one area and then do, you know, be ridiculous in another area, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so I have a small little look back to one of our previous episodes. A look back. Yeah, this is the, the what do you, not, not a look back, uh, just referencing something from the past. Um, and it's, this is one that I'll, uh, I'll probably keep going back to. It's one of my, one of my favorites. Um, so there's an, uh, I guess a New York Times reporter says that uh, the Obama administration is the greatest enemy of press freedom in a generation. Uh, and regardless of whether or not you think that's true or not, I thought it was interesting that, um, so it says, uh, New York Times reporter James Risen calls the Obama administration the greatest enemy of press freedom that we have encountered in at least a generation, explaining the White House seeks to control the flow of information 
and those who refuse to play along will be punished. That's in quotes, and will be punished. I don't know who he's quoting there, Doesn't didn't say, but probably some unnamed high-ranking administration official is what they usually say. But it's just that, just the idea that, I mean. You don't play along, you don't get the free donuts. Essentially, and for, you know, <laughs> and free donuts is a metaphor for, you know, paid, uh, paid attendance at Dreamforce or. <laughs> oh, we're back to that. I knew <laughs> yeah, you were going exactly. into that. <laughs> I'm just saying it's, it's, this is at all levels. I mean, it, and this is why there's such a thing as, you know, all kinds of just basic rules of journalism. Um, and plenty of, plenty of people are probably willing to, or, or engage in some kind of violation of these ethics because they, they want to get the stories and the access and those types of things. And it happened, it happens at all levels. And this is, if you, if you believe this, um, this New York times reporter, then, you know, it happens. I mean, we've certainly had, uh, presidential administrations in the past that have been caught red handed doing this type of thing. I mean, I, I think it, even if it's net, not even explicit, this, I think this kind of thing happens, but, but when it is this, this, the type of thing I don't understand, particularly within the tech press is how it, just blatantly happens kind of like it's like known. Um, but I guess that's better. I would rather know that's like, that's um, I kind of have noticed that I prefer um, reading material from these like um, reporters or analysts who are just outright like partisan. They're like, you know, they're just uh they're very pro or con one camp or another. Um, and I love that because at least I know what their bias is. Right. And they're not, they're not, they're not um, saying that they're, you know, upholding they're they're so, you know, fair and balanced and uh, unbiased because that doesn't, there's no such thing. So in a way, I think it's kind of good that these are people that come out and say, Oh yeah, Salesforce paid for me to be here. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, I guess that's good to know. <laughs> it's still a problem, but it's not as big of a problem. It's could be worse. I still think it's only a problem if it's coloring their, their commentary. If they, but it's, that's that type of thing is always given with the expectation of with of coloring. That's why that's why they do that. The wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Is that yeah, what you mean? I mean, yeah, I mean, and, and and it's also just even if for some reason they didn't change the kind of coverage they gave because of gifts, um, it's it's that appearance of impropriety. It's like, well, okay, maybe in your case, you're here's the driven snow, um. But most people aren't, and so you just can't do those types of things. Like you can't just, you know, you can't walk into a bank with a sawed-off shotgun on your back, even if you're not trying to hold up the place. Because most people that that would do that are there to hold up the bank, right? So you just can't do that. <laughs> I still stick by my words. <laughs> no, I, I think, I think that the. I think you're right. I mean, I think there's certain opinion blogs that people gravitate to and they read to, they read it because they know what to expect from it and it kind of validates their positions and it's almost entertainment at that point for them. Um, but I think there still needs to be a balance. There needs still needs to be someone out there who's, you know, just trying to be as impartial as they can be and just state the facts. I think we still need that. I think unfortunately we as a society, we enjoy our entertainment and that's what gets ratings and that's what brings in the advertising dollars. And, and thus we have this web that we have today. Yeah. In fact, the, uh, I just got around to seeing the, the latest, uh, uh, 
Anchorman movie, Anchorman 2, Ron Burgundy. <laughs> uh, and it basically dealt with that exact issue. It, it dealt with, you know, this 24 hour news cycle and I'll try not to ruin the movie, but it basically deals with this 24 hour news channel that he ends up getting on and um, how he kind of through just trying to get ratings, just started doing a bunch of BS stories that were more for entertainment value than anything. And that's where he got his ratings from. So I'll, that's all I'll say about it for now. <laughs> Do you remember after Dreamforce, like that, that uh, article that Mark Benioff is the Ron Burgundy of tech? No, I don't remember that. <laughs> what? I don't. Oh my gosh. We talked about it. Did we? I, I would have remembered that. You'll have to pull a clip or something for me one yeah, day. I've, well, I mean, I've got it right here. So Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff is an egomaniacal buffoon who laughs at the plight of underpaid Walmart workers with a link cited and flies the prime minister of Haiti up to San Francisco so he can thank Benioff in person in front of 15,000 people for being such an amazing human human being. And like all buffoons, Benioff has no idea how much of a buffoon he truly is. In short, he's a Ron Burgundy of tech. That seems a bit harsh. <laughs> um. Presumably, these people who went to Dreamforce did not realize they were paying good money to see to come see a bloviating faux Buddhist billionaire deliver a three-day tribute to himself. But that's what Dreamforce is. That's <laughs> great. Uh, anyway, go read it. It's great. It's pretty good. I'm sure it has its entertainment value. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, anyway. Hey, uh, SAP is going to resell Adobe's marketing suite in a strike against Salesforce and Oracle. I saw that. This is this, I'm telling you, man, this marketing, this, the marketing uh, area is like, that's the, that's the front lines of the, of the battle right now. Well, it's the next progression in CRM. I think, I think now that Salesforce is kind of locked down what CRM is and, and everything, the next best thing they can do is, is start tackling that marketing. Yeah. I mean, but, that's, I, but it's, I mean, it's everybody, everybody who is playing in this kind of space of CRM is buying up marketing companies like crazy and marketing companies have started to, or marketing software companies has started to progress beyond the traditional marketing model into these um, kind of marketing resource management tools. So they go beyond just sending out campaigns and tracking the ROI on that. Now they're managing the entire, I guess, it's kind of an ERP for marketing. You know, they're, they're managing the entire budget cycle. They're managing who gets what, what dollars get allocated to what, and then they're tracking all the returns on that. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's been, uh, to me, that seems that that's been a a part of CRM for a a long time. It's just that for so long, Salesforce was terrible at it. I don't think marketing has been part of Salesforce. I mean, it tracks campaigns and things like that, but it hadn't actually followed through with fulfilling any of it. It well, just kind of helped. It didn't help, help you deliver, run a report. Yeah, exactly. But it did do things like you could track, you know, which of your opportunities came from leads that were from campaigns and you could assign that campaign like a budget and then figure out, you know, what your cost per sale was and all that stuff. So it kind of did some of that. It just didn't, it was very primitive. Yeah. And unfortunately because it's primitive, it, it's hard to get really good numbers out of that. I mean, you essentially can tie a single campaign to something like an opportunity or some, or to a lead and, it's 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 not so black and white in reality. In fact, a lot of the customizations I do, a lot of the triggers to match data up and all that kind of stuff involves is is wrapped around campaigns and trying to figure out what campaign actually contributed to winning this opportunity. Yeah, it's and and if you don't have things like you know URL 
parameters or something to track that. It's like, okay, you ran, you know, you ran an ad and some people bought some stuff. Right. Did, did, you know, did one cause the other? And you, you know, it's hard to know sometimes. Right. Like it's usually hard to know. That's, that's one of the hard things about marketing is just tracking effectiveness. Well, that's what these tools do best. They, they basically take ownership of that process and they'll feed that data into Salesforce. You can report on it. Um, but essentially they're managing all of that outside of Salesforce. But it seems like it's really Adobe, Salesforce, and Oracle, right? I mean, there's, you know, Adobe bought Omniture and some other companies, Salesforce bought Buddy and Radian and several others. Oracle, who did they, um, the ex- oh, and well, Salesforce, Exact Target, right? But Oracle bought ex- like Exact Target's competitor. Um, yeah, um, Eloqua. Yeah. And probably other ones as well. Yeah. Yeah, and Eloqua started to start playing in that. I guess it's an MRM category, the marketing resource management category, which is the next grade up above from just marketing tools. I need to create a marketing company just with the aim of selling to one of those three companies. <laughs> Let's make that happen. Problem is I don't like marketing. <laughs> I really don't. I, I understand it's necessity and, and I'm, I love that there's people out there in the world that can do that stuff. I'm just not one of those persons, one of those people. Yeah, some some of the marketing tends to raise the hair on the back of your neck. It's like, yeah, I don't like this. <laughs> you have to be Spe- good at spinning, I think. You have, to, you have to be good at looking at the bright side of something at all times, I think. Well, and so much of marketing <laughs> nowadays involves Facebook, which really is annoying because of Facebook's tactics and shenanigans with the fact that, you know, when you like a page... Well, I'll put it to you this way. If you have a, if there's a, if you create a page, right. For your product or your group or something and a thousand people like it and subscribe to it, 100 of them will actually on average will get, um, your posts in their feed. Um, Facebook has really started highly engineering what shows up in people's feeds and it's all based on how much people are paying. So if you just have a free page that you're not paying Facebook, good luck. I mean, people aren't going to see it. I guess I've just, I've never really been a fan. I mean, I I like Facebook. I mean, I use it, but I use it to kind of just see what's going on with my family and things like that. I'm not in it all day, every day, but you know, my wife is in it all day, every day. So not all day, every day, but she's in it more often than I am. And she actually posts stuff and does all that kind of stuff. So I guess I, I'm not really in a position to offer that great of a perspective on it because I, I really don't use it. Yeah. It's, I mean, they're just, they're trying, they're monetizing, right? I mean, they're just. Yeah, but I don't know. They've if you're a well, company, they're the new they're the new thing right now. I mean, it used to be the 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 thing we used to all say is that if you're not if you're a company, you don't have a website, then then of course you're doomed. You have to get a website. You have to have a presence. And now it's you know you have to have a, a Facebook presence. You have to have that. And now Twitter, and then who knows Tumblr, Pinterest. Yeah, Pinterest. Um, yeah, I think Facebook is. I mean, Facebook has. 10 times more users than Twitter. But Twitter's so different. In fact, the, the well, way Twitter's you, very elitist, they, that's it's, um, you know, the celebrities and, you know, the supposed smart people, they're all on Twitter. Yeah. But that's not what I mean. I mean, the, the way, the way anybody who, who lives in Twitter and knows how to get subscribers up or followers up is that you have to kind of be personable and post a lot of just, random, interesting, entertaining stuff. Um, and not necessarily, you know, just 
blah, blah marketing stuff. So that's when you start getting into this line where companies are kind of getting themselves into trouble when they're trying to kind of do something that's going to become viral um, because they're trying to cater to that type of environment where the only reason, the only way you're going to get attention is if you do something funny and entertaining. Um, and, and thus you're, you're kind of like doing this song and dance clown dance, in my opinion, if you're trying to really target Twitter with your marketing, at least from my opinion. Hmm. Yeah. It's weird how the, um, you know, every TV show, all the people on news channels, they've all got their hashtags and they're at, you know, follow me. And it is and they're everywhere, memes. everywhere. Their meme graphics. Yep. Um, so I saw a, uh, a thing that was saying how Amazon and Salesforce are being threatened by Google. I guess it's because they lowered their prices recently. Um, but I didn't care so much about the article, but it was interesting that according to this, whoever these people are, um, Salesforce has 3% market share of IAS and 18% market share of PASS. Which is interesting. I don't know how they calculated those numbers. I'd love to see. It says Amazon and Google are not dependent upon the cloud to maintain the growth of their overall business. However, Salesforce is a pure cloud play investor talk, and it's lagging Amazon by a significant margin. Furthermore, given Amazon's 55% growth in IaaS slash pass, we know that it is gaining even more share on its peers, which might surprise some, get, might surprise some given Google's strong grasp on the internet as a whole. The weird thing to me, the reason why, like I would question how they came up with these numbers and I, I don't think they said how they did, but like Salesforce is not an IS or a PaaS company. They're a software as a service. I mean, to say they do $162 million in platforms, I mean, how do they even break that out? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, are they, are they figuring that, uh, you know, an average company makes a certain number of visual force pages or something? I mean, Salesforce is software as a service. Force.com hardly shows up anywhere as a pass player. You know, it's, it's, you know, elastic beanstalk and app engine and Heroku. Well, maybe they're counting Heroku. That would be it. That would be it. I bet. I bet that's purely Heroku numbers. Yeah. But we've always said that Salesforce will never make its numbers based on Heroku. It, it, it is what it is. And it's a, it's a CRM company. Yeah. So when I say Salesforce is a SaaS company, I'm, I'm talking about, Salesforce. I wasn't thinking of Heroku as a part of that. If you include Heroku, that's definitely a platform as a service. But it says they have 3% of the infrastructure as a service market. And I'm just like, what? I mean, can, really? Can I buy compute time from Salesforce? I mean, where do you go to buy IaaS from Salesforce? But is Salesforce really, <clears throat> other than a few updates and a few articles and, of course, the, the advertising at Dreamforce, I haven't seen them do any kind of real push on Heroku. Have you? I don't think so, but that's in comparison to to the Salesforce brand. I mean, that's pretty much everywhere. Yeah, they don't. I mean, you don't see like standalone Heroku marketing campaigns. I guess is that what you're thinking, right? Yeah, but Heroku never did. They were they're very um, word of mouth type of service. I, I guess all I'm all I'm thinking is that they haven't really put that push forward yet. I think they're fine where it's at right now, but I think if they really wanted to grow that, they, they could put a push there and see what happens. Yeah. Well, let's see. Also interesting was it says Salesforce earns about a quarter of its revenue in this space. So they must be talking about 
Heroku is a quarter of their revenue, and up until now has been able to spend aggressively on R&D as well as sales, general, and administrative expenses. With Amazon and Google having lower prices, Salesforce might have to lower its costs, thus limit its spending, which could hamper growth. At 80 times next year's earnings, this is quite a risk for investors of Salesforce. Um, it said uh, late last year, blah, blah, this guy estimates that uh, Amazon brought in $3.3 billion, $3.8 billion in 2013. And then in next year, or this year, 2014, it'll be $6.2 billion. That's that's big. That's and that's purely, you know, compute and low level resources that AWS is doing, for the most part. All right. That's huge. So I have an idea about um, the new buzzword. Which new buzzword? I think there's one forming, and it's one. <laughs> so old though. Hell, SAP had business. It wasn't, was it called business one or something like that? That was like, yeah, business one. That that was like, that's like 15 years old. Well, now we have Salesforce one. We have box one cloud. We have Xbox one and we have Ubuntu one and plenty of other ones. But I picked those um, because they all had something in common. And that was basically trying to consult. Well, Salesforce one has less in common with the other three, but they were all trying to consolidate all these different disparate technologies that we use every day and try and consolidate them into the single, into the single kind of collaboration platform. Um, and so I think my theory is that beyond marketing, that's the next big thing that's going to come is everyone's going to start tackling this kind of one collaboration piece um, with files, with communications like chatter, Twitter, all those kind of things, Facebook, um, just trying to consolidate all them one and try and, Basically, own that data, own your 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 screen for that type type of stuff. Yeah, so it's almost like they're saying one, as in we want you to only use one provider for this, and uh, and it's us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that or they're they're trying to offer an offering where you can do all these different things, but it's obviously going to get getting kind of hard to to keep track of. I mean, you have Google Docs, and you're doing half your documents there, and then you have. Salesforce and chatter and maybe has some documents there um, or even text messaging and Twitter, you know, communications and all those kind of things. And I think a lot of these tools are either about saying, Hey, instead of doing all that stuff, use our proprietary platform to do that. Or we'll try and consolidate that and kind of give you one view into all of that, that you can manage. And so I guess there's, there's that one aspect of let's consolidate it all. And then two, what's the right way to consolidate it? mash up all the different services and let you still use those different services, but from a single point of contact or go full force proprietary with a single platform. Mm. If you had your druthers, what would it be? Mashup things never work all that well. And of course, anytime you're using a single source for everything and it's got downsides too. I, I don't think there's a, any kind of Nirvana here. I know that at one point when I was trying to be active on Facebook and Twitter and everything else, what I really wanted was a single app, um, even if it was some kind of mashup console app that I can at least view and manage all that from a single screen. So part of me went that route. Yeah. But the other part is that with that, each company has kind of has their own driving factors. Um, they might not want you to use, like Twitter is a good example. They don't want you to use someone else's services. They want you to use theirs because theirs is where they control all the advertising. 
Anyway, that's one of the reasons why they shut down there, basically started limiting the API keys. Right. So now we have companies' bottom line interests kind of get in the way of some kind of synergy, you know, that would be good for the user. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, companies, you know, they don't have your interest at heart. They have theirs. I know. It's so cold-hearted of them. <laughs> <laughs> Stop trying to make money, damn it. I know. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then we have our Salesforce discussion and we're like, come on, make some money. <laughs> exactly. No one can win with us. Can they? Well, you know, the thing with Salesforce, it's like, you know, they're an industry leader. They're 15 years old. Now they get paid a lot from their customers for what they get. And they still can't make money. It's like at some point you've got to quit. Stop with the, you know, the $50 million parties and all the bullshit and just, you know, serve, serve what you are fiduci- fiduciarily required to do by mm-hmm. your shareholders, which is make some damn money. Yeah. So, so that little bit of topic was kind of a segue <laughs> into something I read. Um, Chuck Ginapathy, I, I don't know how to say his name, but he was apparently a, a Salesforce executive that was behind Chatter or helped develop that or at least launch it. And he recently went out on his own. He started, he's on a startup where he raised about $11.2 million for a application or service that he calls tactile. And from, from the interview, he says it, that it aims to automatically synchronize email, calendar, tasks, Salesforce data, LinkedIn contacts, Twitter, and other functions. I thought Salesforce already did all that. <laughs> well, apparently not well enough because he thinks he can do it better. He goes on to say that it will help sale, help salespeople and other users manage data, I guess, more effectively. So, to I me, mean, that's just an indictment of Salesforce. It's like this is stuff that Salesforce tells you they already do, but we all know they don't do very. Well. I mean, one of the things that Salesforce has just always been terrible at is email. There's been plenty of write-ups on how their support for you know just everything from one-off emails to more bulk emails is just. It's a joke. It's been always been really. You talking about the kind of campaign type things, or no? Even even just basic sending and receiving email. It's just always been really. The Salesforce doesn't send and receive email though. It's not like a Lotus Notes or yeah, Lotus Notes. It, it does send and receive email. Well, it does for, for that if, type of thing, but it's not like you're if, going into. I guess you no, can. But if you're selling, if you're and and doing. You know, try, you know, building leads and, and trying to sell things. You know, you want this your CRM system to be able to, you know, you want to be able to have all your communications tracked and in the system. Well, it does and that. Salesforce through, is it's always been really bad. Yeah, but it does that through synchronizing with your mail server or you know some kind of plugin on your Outlook or whichever. Um, so, or but it's send, never really you can kind send of, and receive email through the horrible Salesforce interface that they have for email. Yeah, but that's more like email templates and things like that. It's not really a free form email system. They do have that though. Send an email right under a contact. Yeah, but I don't, it, I don't think that's what it's meant for. It's not meant for sending and receiving, e- you know, daily emails. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. They basically don't have anything that's meant for that. It's just hard right. to do your, it's hard to use your CRM system in that way, which it shouldn't be because that's kind of a core CRM activity. Yeah. So this tactile thing seems like it's going to be some kind of mashup that it's not going to really, well, it, from the way I read it, it seems like it's going to be a mashup. I don't know if it's going to be a mashup or if it's going to be 
just some kind of standalone proprietary application that knows how to communicate with these systems, but yet you're still living within their proprietary environment. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it. I hadn't heard of that guy either. But if he create, if he's the one that created Chatter, um, I don't hold out high hopes for his new venture. Why not? Well, because for the longest time, Chatter was terrible. Um, they completely re-architected it. What about was it a year or two ago? It got a little bit better, but it's still just very so it, well. Now the question is, what is not? What part of Salesforce is not Chatter? I mean, they're claiming it's like what part of Salesforce is not some cloud? I mean, they're it's basically just Salesforce is becoming Chatter or Chatter is becoming Salesforce. I'm not sure which one is eating which. Yeah, but you're still dealing dealing with kind of just very unique data sets that are kind of just being alerted through through some kind of communication channel. It's not not an application that's really designed to help manage all that. You're talking about this new one? No, no, no. I'm the talking about chatter right now. I mean, it's, it's kind of evolving. It started out as just a, a Yammer clone for the most part where it's communication. Yeah. You can attach a file or, you know, send someone a file and those kind of things. Then it kind of evolved to now your Salesforce data is part of the conversation and, and that's happening. And so I think it's just on this slow kind of evolutionary process. And I think, Maybe what what this um, what Chuck is I don't, I'm saying his first name because I don't know his last name but maybe what this 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 guy's doing is that he wasn't getting where he wanted to be maybe he had a certain vision of what Chatter could be and he wasn't able to get there either because of a difference in vision at Salesforce or some other thing and so he decided to go off on his own and do it yeah that's what it sounds like so it sounds like you know there was you know maybe with the marketing and all that where we kind of feel let down by Chatter that. Maybe that was the original vision, but for some reason, something changed. Maybe it wasn't getting the usage they wanted, the tracking they wanted. Um, maybe marketing and, and buying up a bunch of marketing companies took precedence over evolving chatter any further. I, I don't know. Oh, um, speaking of Salesforce profit, uh, ran across this article, something about uh, what is, why is it so hard for a Salesforce to make a profit? And there's some interesting things in here about talking about, you know, why, what's going on. So Salesforce.com exhibits diseconomies of scale with its last sale getting harder than the previous one. Any sales guy will tell you that's 180 degrees from the way things are supposed to work in the real world. You would think that something that's as overhyped as cloud computing products would be flying off the shelves, but judging from the company's high marketing expenses, Dreamforce, it seems that the customer is playing hard to get Salesforce.com's marketing and sales expenses also escalated 47% during the quarter compared to the year before. In, contra- in contrast, revenue rose just 37%. Um, piling up losses can give a company deferred tax assets, including uh, loss carry forwards, that can help shield its future uh, profits from taxes. Uh, Salesforce established a $149 million reserve for the deferred tax in 2012. Um, that's worrying because, it, in effect, it signaled that the company does not think it's going to become profitable anytime soon. So it's like banking all this these losses that it can carry forward against future profits so they don't have to pay taxes on them. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um, SAP reported results that were in line with earlier guidance. Cloud revenue is up 32%, which, you know, if that's coming from, that seems like a big number, but if it was small to begin with, who knows? Um, with total revenue for fiscal 2013 growing in triple digits, 121%. Okay, so there it is. Quarterly revenue. SAP has quarterly re- qu- quarterly cloud revenue of one point three billion in two thousand thirteen. So they're basically as big as Salesforce. I mean, their their cloud alone is as big as Salesforce. It's interesting. 
Um, <laughs> talked about Microsoft. This is interesting. Microsoft generated $24 billion in revenues and $8 billion in profit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Holy crap. Well, in the latest kind of top companies out there, it's Apple and then Microsoft. So it's still up there. It's still a player. And Microsoft's cloud services were up 107%, thanks mainly to Office 365. Yeah. And, and I'm interested to see what them bringing um, Office to the iPad is going to do, which I keep meaning to download uh, and try and use. I'm sure it'll be a little bit. It'll probably be like a blip on the radar. I mean, in, in Microsoft's grand scheme of things, right? Well, I mean, it's... It's their it's their office application being used on iPads. I think it's it's definitely a, an attack on iWork, which people still prefer Microsoft Office to over iWork. Well, that totally depends on who you ask. I mean, a lot of Mac ask people me, want, and want, I'll say I prefer Office over. Well, I can't. You're a Microsoft fanboy, but most most I use Mac a Mac. People, most Mac, <laughs> you're just in denial. Most oh. Microsoft, um, most Mac people don't use Office. They use you know, I work. No, a lot of us do just because we work at companies or have worked at companies that were office shop, Microsoft office shops. And we needed a way to read it. And I yeah, worked, if, didn't well, always do no a good choice. job of saving or reading, you know, word or Excel documents. Yeah. I mean, if you have no choice, you, you, if you have to interoperate with Microsoft office world, then yeah, that's the thing is if you, if you have to use that application and that's what you need to, to put it in a format so that everyone else can see it, you end up using that more, which means you end up kind of getting applica- acclimated to that application more and you end up developing habits for that application. Sure. So whenever you go to another application like I work, you have to kind of relearn something and it feels tedious and you just want to go back to what you know and get the job done. Right. And so I think that's kind of one thing that's saving Microsoft right now in this aspect is that people have a lot of skill set built on writing and doing stuff in office and they're not ready to let that go yet. I just, I'll never forgive Microsoft for the, when, when they've had complete monopolies and you know, when they used to charge basically $500 for a copy of office pro. Um, yeah, yeah I, have, I have big issues with the way they price things, but I, I, it's hard to argue that they do have really good software. I mean, I really like visual studios and IDE and I really like office windows. Not so much anymore. <laughs> See, I can't stand Office because I don't think it's gotten any better in probably 15 years. And, and they've just, they've, it's, it's got featureitis and maybe they have to, and I'm not saying that's not the best thing. Maybe, maybe that is the best thing for them to have for Microsoft Word to have 8 million features. But it, for me, it's just, it's so overkill. And I've used Office forever and still is just, it offends my sensibilities. <laughs> It's got so much and they keep going from one UI paradigm to another, trying to figure out how do we, how do we show 8 million features to a user? How do you surface that in some kind of meaningful way that doesn't completely overwhelm, but still allows access to those features. And I thought the ribbon idea was okay. I thought that kind of helped at least it gave them more options on how to display certain things and, and things like that. It, it was a bit of a, something that you had to get used to. But now that I'm used to it, I prefer it over the tiny little toolbars. Yeah. I still don't understand the ribbon. I, I go to the toolbars because I don't ever know how to get to the ribbon I need. Mm. But again, that's goes back to the, you know, I've been using computers for 30 years and you know, you come out with some kind of new UI thing and I'm, I'm probably not going to like it. Cause I like my drop down menus. Damn it. <laughs> 
You like your chiseled interfaces. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It's it's so funny that that old classic interface is chiseled. It's it, it's almost perfect because you, you, when you think about old things, you think about you know people writing on stone chiseled tablets and things like that. So it's kind of fitting <laughs> that the, those original interfaces were trying to mimic some kind of stone interface. And it happened to look pretty good on low. I mean, it, you know, imagine when that became popular. I mean, that's when we all had. You know, we were lucky to have like a what a 72 DPI monitor. I mean, and it, it worked pretty well on low DPI displays. All right. Well, it's easy. Kind of, it was easy to create that effect with just two colors. I mean, you, you had your light gray and your dark gray to kind of indicate that depth. Yeah, exactly. Well, three colors, the depth and, and the white background, but um, yeah. So maybe it was you just can, a, a design. It was kind of a function form type thing. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I, I always find that interesting. All right, so I've had a uh, an issue that I've been helping a client with, but I've got um, some info to lead into it here. Um, some of it's about how you know this more coverage on Salesforce's fifteen fifteen year old fifteen fifteenth birthday, I guess. Um, this this uh, is an article. It's uh, an enterprise ad- adolescent. I cannot talk tonight. Enterprise adolescent. I guess I'm really tired. Salesforce.com struggle at fifteen. Um, in a document posted uh, to the SEC site, Smith, who is who's their CFO, Salesforce's, he's leaving though. Uh, he responds to an SEC query regarding revenue growth in the company's fiscal year, and makes the following eye-opening admission. I love this. You ready? We currently do not have financial systems and controls in place to be able to accurately quantify the percentage of our total revenue derived from subscriptions to the sales cloud or any other core service offerings in any particular fiscal period. (laughs) This was prompted by the SEC, which had asked Salesforce to quantify what it meant when it said that it made most of its money from, quote, sales cloud subscriptions. Oh, so you can add SEC to the list of people who don't quite really understand what the hell sales cloud means. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Marketing got in the way of that one. But the fact it, that it they, seems like marketing kind of did their thing and rebranded everything and accounting was like, I don't know how to group that together. <laughs> but they don't know where they're, where the money's coming from and what it's for. I love that. Um, Anyway, later down it says that clearly Salesforce is a phenomenal success and investors should remember that a quality business and quality financial reporting need not go hand in hand. Um, But an enterprise software company should be embarrassed if it is incapable of basic analysis of its own sales data. Okay. And this leads into, but that's almost, if Salesforce was a, some kind of ERP system that or financial system, maybe, but it's a CRM application. It's it's not like they can eat their own dog food and all of a sudden have financials. Oh, you're such an apologist, man. I'm not. I'm just saying it's not a fair comparison to say, oh, they're a software company. I mean, there's a lot of software companies it's, it's that fair have to, say to learn how to how to do accounting. It's fair to say that it's completely ridiculous. They can't tell the SEC what money their revenues are for. I don't know. I, I think subscription models are some of the hardest models to quantify. <laughs> okay. Because it's all, all right. about the subscription and, and revenue recognition on what point in time you can recognize the those revenue and all those kind of things. Though, man. I don't those know. Are- <laughs> to me, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's a lot of stuff to account for. I mean, it's just, deferred. it's not like a it's roll just- up some report that says, here's what I made last year. 
It's just a further checkbox that says, or some type that says this is sales cloud and this is, you know, service cloud. Well, sure. Cause you have to, (laughs) okay. Okay. So anyway, this, the article then leads into um, the second section, which is called big data, big problem. Um, big data. (laughs) We should have like some, some like really, we should get Jay or someone to do like some big deep voice, big data. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In the age of big data, that seems like a startling oversight. Um, quote, there's a, this is from Parker Harris. There's a lot of companies going at this space and we're going to be taking a shot at it ourselves. They're talking, he's talking about big data. I think we have a good strategy. We'll start with CRM data. Give our customers great solutions to deal with that and then start to combine it with other data sources. Mix in a little uh, data.com probably. Um, and it says Constellation believes they're like a research thing. Constellation believes that the big data and analytics opportunities critical to enhancing, enhancing customer experiences to benchmarking and brokering data services and to building new business models around big data and analytics. Customers should encourage Salesforce.com to consider uh, to consider how to enable big data models in digital businesses in the next iteration. For months on, though, there has been no major announcement on a strategy for advanced analytics. So now it looks like Salesforce needs to fight a big data battle on two fronts, both internally, because <laughs> they can't report their revenue, and in its product portfolio. And the big question is, how will they find the time? Um, anyway, that just talks about more about how there's this just, you know, of course the big, the big data explosion and how Salesforce seems to be, they seem to be, have, have been caught flat footed with big data right now. They're not, they don't have any, anything to say about it. Anything they can say. I mean, Parker Harris is like, he's basically says, well, we can tell you we're doing something, but we can't tell you anything about it. Nor do we have anything we're announcing for the next four months or anything. Um, so that was interesting. And then, um, <laughs> so my thought was that, okay, we're we're asking Salesforce.com to give us a big data solution. Yet, how much data do they allow? This is a question for you, John. This is quiz time. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> how much data is a is allotted per user in Salesforce? Allotted per user. Yeah. So like seventy five megs or something like that. So so you get so any org gets one gig of data for free. Right. Um, beyond 50 users, they start allotting more data per user. What do you know what that number is? So you guess 75. I think 75, 75, what megs megs. Wow. Answer 20 megs per user. Ah, oh, it's way off. <laughs> so the problem is you can't get your data into Salesforce. You can't get big data into Salesforce. Yeah, well, you, I mean, come on, twenty meg. You're not going to get much of anything into that. This is the this is the problem that so many companies deal with. Anyway, what I was going to tell you was um, uh, a client that I'm working with right now. They've been struggling because they are looking at and if they're going to run their business on Salesforce, um, annual, basically doubling uh, an annual cost of seventy six thousand dollars a year, and it will double every year. Um, and this is for not not really big data either. It's just a but, lot of transactional level data. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about, I don't know, maybe like a million records a year or something. I can't remember the numbers. We we did the an analysis, but 
I don't, it'd be, it'll be interesting to see how, what kind of solution Salesforce is going to come forward with for big data, considering that, you know, what they allow you to, the amount of data they allow you to have. I mean, they obviously don't want you to, with the, with the, with the, the amount they charge and Salesforce charges about, oh, I think it's over $2,000 per gig for additional data storage, $2,000 a gig. Obviously no, no one is going to be doing any kind of, I mean, not only just, uh, no one's going to be using Salesforce for big, any kind of analytics. But it's interesting, though, because um, that's one of the things like post Dreamforce that you, I, you saw a lot of coverage of, at least for people who, for an analyst that actually analyze, um, was, you know, Salesforce's a- analytics offering is just weak. I mean, yeah, they, I mean, it's, it's kind of always slowly improved, but it's always been weak. Um, and there's just people, every, few months or every time a Salesforce release comes out that, you know, the question is, you know, is it going to, we're going to have like good analytics now, are they going to, you know, but are they, are they really enhance it? Are they really trying to, trying to target that market? I mean, well, maybe they're 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 pretty much leaving it up to third party vendors. I I think, I think, so I think one problem is let's say Salesforce is not trying to target that. And I mean, cause why really, why would they? I mean, mean, analytics is so specific to to an industry. I mean, it's it's really hard to kind of just blanket, analytic tools that would work for everybody. Right. It's, it's like domain specific. Like, what do you want? Right. You want analytics for sales or and marketing, or do you want analytics for, you know, I don't know, sub, subway transactions or something. I mean, they're just completely different models and yeah. So who knows? Um, yeah. But I think, I think Salesforce is feeling the big data pressure. I think that's the problem. There's all this pressure to have for any kind of tech company that's in the software space to have some kind of big data, story of some sort. That's also that because right there's, there's this, I think I saw it on Twitter, but there was this cartoon um, and it, it has a bunch of people sitting in a conference room and the guy at the head of table said, let's solve the problem by using big data. None of us have the slightest idea what to do, to do it. <laughs> but then that led me to this market site where that graphic I think originated from. And within that article, um, it says there's a funny saying circulating with marketers, marketers right now on the current state of big data. And this is in quotes, big data is like teenage sex. Everyone talks about it. No one really knows how to do it. Yeah. Everyone no thinks everyone else is doing it. <laughs> no so one's everyone claims they're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so great. I like that. Um, and, and it's interesting as I've kind of follow, follow on to that. Um, there's a new Salesforce rival supposedly called Relate IQ. They keep raising money. They raise like a quarter or a yeah, like a, well, their market cap's like a quarter of a billion. Um, but they just raised like another forty million. But they're a, a big data startup, supposedly, that helps um sales teams track, you know, their contacts basically. Um it's they say they're an alternative to Salesforce, but they're more driven by data. So it's like it's not just a con. I mean, Salesforce is kind of like their CRM stuff is net. Well, it's a fancy, it's a really fancy nowadays, fancy contact manager. Um, but it's never Salesforce has never analyzed your data to show you where to go spend your time and, you know, which customers to go after, which segments and things like that. I mean, maybe there's some app exchange add-ons that help that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's a kind of an ecosystem thing, but, um, yeah, so they've got a bunch of customers, um, Asana box, whatever. Yeah, I thought it was interesting though that there's someone, there's a company that's coming in right now that's saying, hey, we're going to be a better Salesforce because Salesforce has been caught completely flat footed on big data. And so yeah, we're going to, people we're gonna are be saying in- the same thing about social too. 
you know, when it came well, to Salesforce chatter. Was. Well, Salesforce was leading the way on that social oh. enterprise, which, you know, so you don't hear about that anymore because that, that whole thing basically failed. Yeah, but there were other companies with CRM applications that are like, you know, we're, we're social. We started from the ground up as social and this and that. And I don't hear anything about them now. Because they got bought by Adobe, Microsoft, or Adobe, Salesforce, or Oracle. <laughs> That's why I don't hear about them. <laughs> uh, so I have one final topic, and it's it's okay. just it's a rant. I think I don't I don't know what to call it. It's it's but essentially it's going back to best practices and in unit testing. And one of the things I do as a best practice for unit testing is is a factory method to create all my objects. So if I need to write a test that involves an account, I call this factory method that gets me an instance of an account. And that way, if there's any kind of validation rules or anything along those lines that are required for that record to be created, I can set that in one place. And should a new rule be added to the system, I can fix that factory method. And now all my unit tests will will continue to pass. I'm sure you do something similar. Yeah, and there's there's a couple of tools that are pretty cool too, that people have created. I think they're open source and available. Um, can't think of the names of them right now, but if you're interested, Google. Yeah, and so my rant is that I see people trying to do this, but they're doing it wrong. They're doing it so wrong. They'll, they'll actually try to create or insert the records from within that factory method, or they'll, they'll need an opportunity or some kind of thing where, and they'll actually go and create all the products and all the, everything all within that single method and just return the one object. Um, and to me, that just kind of severely breaks that model and, and what the factory is actually for. And so I just, I just, it was just one of those things that I came across and was really frustrated by because now I, now there's kind of this thing where I have my factory method, my factory classes, and they have something that looks similar to my factory classes. And now the, there's like two different ways of building tests and all those kind of things. And, there are points where I'm like, do I refactor this? And I'm like, well, no, I'm not really, I don't really have the budget in the project to refactor all this and all those kind of things. So I end up having to leave it where it is and it's just kind of frustrating. So, so, so what is it about the way that you see people doing it? That's not right. Well, they're actually creating the records within the the methods, which kind of the records within the methods, I'm sorry, within the methods. Yeah. So whenever they create the instance, whereas I would normally just return the instance and leave my test method or my setup method to actually do the insert which gives me the opportunity at that point to either add additional data or set certain fields that pertains to my particular scenario for the unit test. But now that record's in the system or it's been inserted before I had a chance to do all that. So the record might be unusable for me, for me. I see. So, and you're keeping your factories more fine grain. So if you need, if you need an opportunity that has a related account and contact, you know, you're, you're going to use a factory to create the account, account separate factory to create the contact. You might customize both of those. You'll do, you'll do the inserts on them. Right. And then, if, you know, you'll have a factory to create the opportunity as well. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. So it was just kind of a peeve of mind, something I wanted to rant on that I, I just, I think the best way is to keep your method simple. Don't try to do the DML operation within the factory method and, and return the instance. That gives you much more flexibility with that object. You can do a lot of different things with it. Or you can even just create an... There are some test scenarios within unit tests where you don't even actually have to do an insert. Um, you could have an object that just exists in memory that you can run a bunch of stuff on and you don't even actually have to create it. That's the way I try to write most of my code, actually. Don't actually do a DM, DML? Yeah, if I can get it... well. I mean, my, actually, my, the production code itself just operates on instances of things, and they don't necessarily have to be in the database. 
Um, but this, this brings up one of the things that's just a joy of being a Salesforce developer is you can do everything right. You can, you know, have great test coverage and, you know, well-factored classes and all that type of thing. And all it takes is an admin to go in, into the into production and start adding validation rules and stuff and break all your tests. And you don't find out until the next time you go to deploy something and all of a sudden you have a thousand failing tests after waiting 20 minutes for it to yeah, respond. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> after waiting for a 20 minute deploy verification or, a, you know, verify only or whatever, because it takes so long for tests to run in Salesforce for some reason. And then you find out that all of your tests are broken because, you know, of a single validation rule, it's, it's weird that validation rules are excluded from um, requiring to be done in a sandbox and requiring tests to pass and things. I mean, if they can, if a, if a validation rule can break all the tests, then they should be a part of the, you shouldn't be able to do that in production. And if you do do it in production, it should require, it should cause all tests to run. And only if they pass, does that validation rule get saved? Well, you know why they wouldn't. Cause that means well, the admin would have to sit there and wait 20 Salesforce? minutes for, for all the tests to run when they're saving a validation rule. Well, there's just so many reasons that they don't. That's, that's one, but also Salesforce is again, as a heart, just a CRM system. And you know, this crummy database triggering language called apex was, was all this stuff was just a bolt on. And now we have a clash of different models, different development models, different deployment models. There's still a lot of stuff that people just do right in production and they're supposed to, and that's the way they have been trained for the past 15 years. And yeah, there's a lot of impedance mismatch. Yeah. But I, I find just even just setting up my my data model for testing is just an immense pain. I mean, not only do I do the factory method thing, but you know, I, the fact that you can't create certain types of objects, um, you know, you can't create a standard price book. You right. know, you can't create a user, or there's you, tricks you still, to do. You can you can create a user if you do a certain trick. You know, do the run as all that kind of stuff. But the, the fact that things are excluded from DML, or the fact that certain things just <clears throat> don't seem to operate correctly when, when running in a unit test, it forces you to do really crazy things or That's not true. do or not test them the right way or, or not even be able to get a, a good test, the kind of test that you want to have. Yep. I mean, and part of Salesforce is the part of this, the testing is, is fairly cool. I mean, the fact that, you know, just it automatically wrap all your tests in a transaction that gets rolled back, rolled back automatically. I mean, that's kind of cool. And they, they added the, the ability to like um, exclude all your production data or all the data that's in the org from your test so that you're only operating on test data that those, I mean, although there's, there's still limitations. Like I think you still can't create a, the price book, right? Is right. that what it is? Yeah. yeah. So that's like anything having to do anything, any test having to do that requires an opportunity, even if it's just for like some oblique purpose, if it's got a, if it, if you have to use the standard price book for that, like you basically have to turn on use all data for all those tests. Well, actually, no, you can, if you, if you do an at test for each one of your methods, you can make that method see all data. So you wouldn't have to do it at the class level and make all your unit tests, but any test involving that opportunity obviously would have to see all data. Yeah. Well, I'm saying any test that for whatever reason, you know, needs that standard price book to be there. Right. Um, yeah. It's going to need, it's yeah. going to need that. But, but anyway, they've, what I was, what I was saying is that they've added some nice things and they, they, um, they added the, uh, the mocking callouts, which was kind of nice. Um, yeah. I mean, they've, I mean, they, I don't know. They, they're doing things to make it better. The problem is, it's just, they are 
just adding layers and layers and layers to a system that an architecture that fundamentally is not really suited for the purpose. Um, it might've been for the original purpose, but not for where, where Salesforce is now and, and trying to be a platform as a service. Um, it's a real problem, which is why you don't see any in the wild. You don't see anyone using force.com for their platform as a service, unless they're targeting the Salesforce ecosystem and they're, and they're going after their Salesforce customers. It's just not a viable platform as a service. Yeah. Again, we always come back to that circle of why don't we well, just fold Heroku into it and let us build Heroku well, style it, applications within Salesforce. If for no other reason, just the engineering effort required to do that would be massive. I mean, they can't even add classes to Apex right now, or not classes, packages to Apex uh, because of the engineering, because of the size of the engineering effort. Yeah, but I mean, we've had this system before. I mean, they could regale Apex to triggers only, and you know, moving forward, everything else is Heroku. You said they could regale Apex. Did I say regale? What did, What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. That's what I'm asking. Let me define it. Define regale is one of those years, probably one of those words that I know when to use it, but don't really know what it means. To entertain or amuse someone with talk. Regaled her. What what were you thinking? I think I know the word you were thinking of. Um relegate. Relegate. That's what yes. I was thinking. Yeah. Relegate. <laughs> yeah. I knew that. That's weird. I knew what word you meant. That's why my brain was like, huh, something wasn't right there. Regale. I have to start using the word regale. <laughs> That's funny. It's, that like a, it's like a regale. In my head, I'm thinking that word. And you picked up on that and you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Fun with words. Yeah, Salesforce growing pains, right? I mean, yeah, but it hasn't grown in, in terms of development very much. I mean, it we, get, hasn't, we, get, I know. we get a bone every so often. We get some really great feature, and we get so excited about it because it's it's like oh, being I some don't. deprived kid or something that never gets a toy, and all of a sudden they get you know Christmas comes around, they get that one toy, new toy a year. I'm, it's like I'm no, speaking from personal experience. Analogy. I didn't get a lot it's, of toys when I was a you, kid. You kidnapped someone five years ago and every so often you go in there and throw a candy cane down to them to them. It's, it's your, uh, it's the Stockholm syndrome of, of technology. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That might be a better analogy. I just wanted to work. We in all there have some, some, all have pit, some pity syndrome. for me because I didn't have very many toys growing up, but <laughs> I make up for that now. Yeah. But yeah, we, we get really excited about these features because you know, it, even though it's something that we could do in any other language or, or we have ways of doing that in other languages and we have all this flexibility, when it comes to our daily lives and what we do for Salesforce, it, when we see something resembling something that we've had for years, it, we just get really excited about it because we think it's just going to open up this whole world. I think I felt that way with remote objects um, that we talked about last week and that, you know, maybe I can start using, you know, a different templating engine and maybe, you know, do some different things with pages that I really haven't either have done before, but it was a lot of work with all the postbacks and synchronizing all that or, just staying outside of the view state model and doing it entirely in JavaScript. And it would be nice to have this to help, you know, save some time. Yeah. <laughs> so no, we're, we're Salesforce developers. So what'd you bring to drink? Um, well, so earlier I had a glass of, uh, 2010 Cote de Rhone. Um, Cote de Rhone. Yeah. What is that? What? I don't know what that is. The Rhone Valley. I'm not an alky like you. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, you're an alky just like me. <laughs> That's the Rhone Valley, man. Um, 
Yeah, Code Drone is like it's one of the more general um, AOCs that cover. I think you can, if you're from anywhere in that region, you can call. Well, and this is actually a Code Drone village, which is only like select areas within that. But it's it's they're generally like Grenache and Syrah. Mm-hmm. But I um I noticed that the 2009 and 2010 are both out, and so I bought one of each to see. I think that they're both were pretty good. I think the 2010 is a little better though. But um and then uh, also had a whiskey ginger. But at this point, I have nothing because it's late and I've drank everything. <laughs> you started early. I didn't start early. It's just late. Yeah, it is now. I got to go. To, I got to go to work tomorrow, man. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. You roll out of bed and fall into your, <laughs> <Yeah>. your keyboard. <laughs> that or do you uh, sleep with your computer and you just wake up, start typing. Uh, I just slide it into the bed. Wake <laughs> you up say under it. the bed? Yeah. <laughs> You're a, a, a coding troll. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but okay. Well, trolls hide under the bed, don't they? Or oh. monsters or something. So yeah. What are you drinking? Uh, I just grabbed some Cabernet. It's nothing special. Just something we had mm. in the house. And I decided I wanted some wine. Mm. So we both had red wine. Yeah. It's interesting. It's weird. I don't follow that rule of what do people that take red wine more in the winter and white wine in the summer. I mean, that dude, I do probably drink a little bit more white wine in the summer, maybe, but I don't drink um, any white wine. I know you told me before I need to expand my palate, but I just don't like white wines. You're winest. <laughs> winest. That's right. I like them red, <laughs> red and dry. Yeah. That's my thing. Gotta watch out for those whites. Give you a headache. <laughs> That's even worse. Let's say that. <laughs> Especially since I'm not white. You're making me sound racist. <laughs> exactly. See? The truth comes out. Uh, all right. I think we have a show. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you can cut that last part out. <laughs> Staying in, man. Fine. Good right, day, good, sir. Good day, sir.